Our teenage years are often those in which we take our first, but certainly not our last, sip of beer, enjoy our first kiss with tongue, and discover the joy of philosophizing. And yet, however the teenager attempts to sum up the philosophy of Marx or Socrates or Freud or whoever, it never comes out quite right. The unexamined life is not worth living, says the teenager with a wry smile, thinking, game, set, match, in his head. In theory, communism works. In theory, says another. I recall a moment like this out of my own life when I was about 15 years old. It was a summer evening, and we were sitting in the computer room tucked away in the back of my parents' house. A friend of mine told me then, as though it were the most brilliant, mind-bending idea in the universe, a theory which he accredited to Friedrich Nietzsche. Turning down the Radiohead song which was playing on my computer speakers, he said, Do you realize that if time is infinite, then everything which has happened in our lives has already happened before and will happen again an infinite number of times? Um, what? I responded. Think about it, he said. If time is infinite, then everything must have already happened before not just once, but an infinite number of times. Because inevitably, if time is that long, then all possible scenarios had to have played out already and will play out again, including this conversation. Nietzsche said that, unquote. I remember finding this theory mildly interesting at the time, but not compelling enough to devote any more thought or attention to it in the subsequent days or years. If anything, it left me with the accurate thought that whoever this Nietzsche guy was, he probably had some pretty cool ideas about the universe. Fifteen years later or so, I found myself once more face-to-face with this theory, now in a graduate seminar at Rutgers University on Nietzsche's epic work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. As it turned out, my friend hadn't just entirely concocted this idea on his own. Nietzsche really did say that. However, my friend's version of it was a grotesque simplification of Nietzsche's actual theory. In the beginning of part three of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche provides a fascinating parable entitled On the Vision and the Riddle, which contains the idea first relayed to me as a teenager. The hero of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Zarathustra, is in a conversation with a dwarf. Zarathustra says to the dwarf to imagine that where they stand is a gateway with the word moment written above the door. Time stretches into infinity in both directions. They stand in the gateway in the moment where infinity meets. The dwarf says to Zarathustra, All that is straight lies, truth is crooked, time is a circle. But Zarathustra answers him in a kind of rage. Quote, See this moment. From this gateway moment, a long eternal line stretches backward. Behind us lies an eternity. Must not whatever can already have passed this way before? Must not whatever can happen already have happened, been done, passed by before? And if everything has already happened... Here before, what do you think of this moment, dwarf? 
must this gateway to not already have been here? Unquote. This friend of mine from my teenage years clearly had heard some grotesque distortion of this scene in Zarathustra somewhere along the way. When he related to me, the takeaway for both of us was little more than everything which once happened will happen again. Cool. Let's go listen to Pink Floyd. But, in fact, there was a much more sophisticated philosophical point Nietzsche was making here, which we were and would have been hopeless to understand on that long-ago summer evening. To help us make more sense of what Nietzsche meant by this theory of eternal recurrence, I have brought Paul Stefan onto the Schrift. Paul is a lecturer at the University of Leipzig. He is currently doing his PhD at Albert Ludwig University in Freiburg on authenticity in Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and Stirner. Paul has published and lectured on Nietzsche extensively. So maybe get into the parable itself. Mm-hmm. I'll give a little background, but you can, if I miss something or something you want to add, feel free to, to mention. Because I think we should also stress that this particular parable is really a highlight of the book. Yes. And it's certainly, for me, like, I think if I had read it without a good teacher, I would have just read right past it, but when you actually like dig into it, you realize how deep and how much it contains philosophically. I also wonder, wow, how much else am I missing in this book because I'm not reading slowly or carefully enough. Mm-hmm. But parables call it On the Vision and the Riddle. It's in part three, Zarathustra. So Zarathustra, he's on a ship and he's telling a story. To his to the sailors in the ship mm-hmm. and this is a story about how he was climbing up mountains and on top on his shoulder is carrying a dwarf on his shoulder am i right so far Some yeah kind of half dwarf half mm-hmm. mole yeah so he's climbing up climbing up he says I climbed, I climbed, I dreamed, I thought, but everything oppressed me. I resembled a sick person whose severe agonies make him weird. So I get the impression that he's just really oppressed by this. This dwarf is really heavy on his shoulders mm-hmm. and he's carrying him. He starts to speak about courage. He says, 
There is something in me that I call courage. This has so far slain every discourage. It's conquered everything. My courage can conquer anything, mm-hmm. so to speak. And now courage is telling me to tell you, dwarf. Dwarf, it's either me or you. Ich oder du. Mm-hmm. And then he has this long... He writes a little bit more about courage, how courage can defeat pity, courage can de- defeat the abyss, courage can conquer death, even death. Mut auf Deutsch. He says to the dwarf, it's either me or it's you. I'm stronger than you are. And you don't know my most abysmal thought, even you, that you couldn't handle that. At this point, the dwarf jumps off of his shoulder and they're standing in a gateway. Okay. And this gateway is filled with symbolism and metaphor and all kinds of meaning. On top of the gateway is inscribed the word moment or Algenblick. Path extends in two directions toward infinity. So, I mean, you can't really imagine it because no one, no human can imagine infinity, but you have this gate, it says moment at the top, there's these two pathways going toward infinity. And then Zarathustra asks the dwarf, he says, do you believe, dwarf, that these paths contradict each other eternally? Interesting question. The dwarf says, all that is straight lies, all truth is crooked, time itself is a circle. And interestingly here, Zarathustra then says, you spirit of gravity, don't make it too easy on yourself. So maybe we should just pause here for a minute. Notice that he says, don't make it too easy on yourself. Okay. I always find this interesting because the dwarf seemingly just gave a very actually complex answer. He said, everything straight lies. That's like paradox and truth is crooked. Time is a circle. Most people would hear these ideas and think those are very complex, sophisticated ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Zarathustra is saying, you're making it too easy on yourself. Do you have any response to that? Like, why is, how is he making it too easy on himself? What, what is Zaratusha trying to convey here? So I think, I mean, one maybe has to, I mean, to understand what this dwarf, I mean, this species, a dwarf, uh, a mole figure should stand for. I think that uh, Nietzsche is using his it is a kind of a personification of what he per- 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 perceives as modern nihilism. I mean, uh, at, uh, in, in other passages of the, the book, he, he speaks very similarly of last man or, 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 or the small man. I, I think that this um, understanding of history as a circle, as a uh, eternal repetition 
of the same is for Nietzsche uh, the very <coughs> essence of um, yeah, the, the, uh, the you of modern nihilism of history. There, there is no uh, transcendence. Now that you mention it in those terms, I think that the original view of, of time was the biblical view, or the pre, I guess, modern view, was moving in a direction, like from the creation to, I guess, the second coming of Jesus, or just kind of to utopia. It was like a very hopeful view. And nihilism doesn't believe in God, obviously, it doesn't believe in purpose. So time is infinite. It just keeps going. It's like just going through space. Like it's just going into more and more nothingness, right? Mm -hmm. And Nietzsche, I think, gets associated with the idea of eternal return because, well, he's just known for that. And it might seem like a kind of revolutionary or inspiring idea, I guess, that like everything will happen again, which already happened. But yeah, I mean, this is like the nihilist part of it. It's a kind of an opposite reaction to the biblical conception of time. Is that why it's nihilist or? Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I think one a second uh, thought which can be found in how philosophers uh, thought about the history in ancient Greece and Rome because they also had a particular view of history and they thought of history as a eternal repetition of the same tragic circle of the fights between uh, different uh, gods and um, the, the uh, coming of the new gods and, and so on. We also didn't uh, think of uh, history as a progress in, uh, in any way. So I think that whereas Nietzsche criticizes Buddhist uh, notion or alleged uh, Buddhist notion of history, he is uh, fascinated by the Roman and Greek version of it, because in this version that there, there is also no uh, escape. We, we, we are a, a trap in this without uh, goal or higher uh, me meaning, but at the same time, we have to embrace it. We, we have to we, we take this word view and not as a um, source of uh, pessimism or uh, nihilism, but we uh, uh, use it as a source of uh, inspiration to, yeah, to, to uh, embrace our current historical situation and the best out of it. We, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's this uh, heroic sense 
Ooh, it wants e-eternal recurrence, which Nietzsche tries to, to uh, reform hate for the uh, modern time, I think. Listening to The Shrift. Interview 9 with Paul Stefan, lecturer at the University of Leipzig. Weishlach. size, I think we both are, is that this idea of time being a circle, it might, I guess, well, he says don't make it too easy on yourself. So there's some sense in which the Buddhist conception or even the Greek and Roman conception, there's something about it that for Nietzsche is too easy. It's too comfortable. And I think also for me, it's just, again, it's like most people, if you said time is a circle, I don't mm. say most people, but I'm thinking of like the Lion King song, Circle of Life, you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the circle of life. It has like this very kind of elevated sound to it, mm. that everything repeat. And again, I think Nietzsche is known for, that's kind of how Nietzsche is thought in the popular imagination of this like, eternal, everything repeats and repeats and repeats. He's actually saying, no, that's like way too easy, this idea. Mm -hmm. And for most, for, this actually seems like it would be a very advanced idea. And here he's criticizing the dwarf for saying, don't make it too easy on yourself. Okay. And the dwarf's response, like we said, is very nonchalant. It's, oh yeah, we're in the moment. Time is a circle. There's no truth. You can see he's not really working to come up with an answer mm. in the dwarf. He's just comes to him very easily. Mm. Okay, shall we continue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Let's see what. Yeah, there's a lot more to talk about. I apologize. <laughs> so he now discusses how, right, everything which has happened before will happen again. He says, must not whatever can already have passed this way before, must not whatever can happen already have happened, been done, passed by before. And if everything has already been here before, what do you think of this moment, dwarf? Must this gateway too not already have been here? 
And are not all things firmly knotted together in such a way that this moment draws after it all things to come, therefore itself as well. Okay, so essentially it's kind of pretty wild idea that like if time is infinite, everything that's happened has to have happened before because if you replay time enough, somehow the same things will happen again. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the sun explodes and then a new sun comes and I mean, it's kind of a crazy idea, right? Yeah. Is that what he's saying? Like, is that what the idea is? That if time is infinite, that everything has to repeat? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think that that uh, is this uh, the uh, idea, but I, I think what uh, in my, my understanding, what Zarathustra is stressing here that is that if we take this conception of eternal recurrence seriously, we, we have to uh, apply it to, to ourselves. We, 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 we don't, uh, I mean, it's not an abstract conception are, are about the world. It's something that are applies to each and every moment of our life. We, we uh, are not um, detached observers of the, the, uh, the circle of life, but uh, we, we, we are uh, part of it. Yeah. But I still think he's, I just want to get the math right, so to speak. But the idea is mm-hmm. that if time is eternal, then everything has to repeat because eternity is so vast, it's beyond vast, that by definition, everything has to have already happened, not only once, but I guess thousands of times, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what he's saying? or is that uh, time is infinite and, and matter is uh, finite. So, and uh, this is the reason why that there is a finite uh, number of possible combinations of right. matter, yeah, which repeats itself. Yeah, sure. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess we should continue, but mm-hmm. essentially we have, they're in the gate, the gateway, it says moment. It seems like the dwarf's conception of the moment is that it's really not that um, quote unquote important because there's going to be millions, billions, trillions more moments. And each one is just a drop of water in this huge sea. Mm-hmm. So it's not that big of a deal at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, this is what I wanted what I tried to to say that we shouldn't take this conception as a kind of yeah as a cosmological one uh, that uh, while Arab Ustra utters these uh, thoughts he becomes more and more quiet. Yeah. So 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 he maybe realizes more and more uh, clearly 
that it's not an, an, an abstract idea, but it's, yeah, it's, or, or he maybe uh, asks himself, yeah, okay, uh, what is the actual, as it were, uh, implication? Uh, yeah, the, the uh, existential implication of Consequences. It is, it is thought, yeah. yeah, so mm -hmm. that's interesting. Like, Zaratustra, he is becoming more and more quiet, like you said, and I guess you might say more and more depressed, maybe mm -hmm. we can infer that, because this is actually a very disturbing thought. You know, we again, going back to the Lion King, Circle of Life, it sounds so nice, and it has a nice connotation, but... We like to think, or maybe quote-unquote pretend, that our lives are, have, are full of meaning and the moment is special and important. And essentially, this, the dwarf's conception is just destroying that specialness that we, we attach to our, to our lives, mm -hmm. in a way. Because he's saying, this moment is just going to repeat itself, it's just... It's just going to go on endlessly. There's going to be billions more. Like, and this again, I think we can summarize as nihilism. Right? Mm -hmm. Nothing matters. Mm -hmm. And if you really think about nihilism seriously, it is very depressing, right? Because, and I like you've pointed out is that I think in philosophy we we often talk about it in an abstract way, a removed way, where we have our lives and we have philosophy and we can talk about philosophy, but it doesn't really, we don't see it as part of our own personal lives. And I think Zarathustra here is, is taking the dwarf's conception and applying it to his own personal life and becoming very despairing because of this. We, we uh, can have the same in, in profession when we look at Earth's history on a global scale, we, we have the, the, this uh, endless repetition of uh, war, of um, evolutions, which uh, we begin with straight uh, folks, but uh, in the end, in, yeah, in just the, the uh, new uh, forms of tyranny. Uh, yeah, and I think that this conception of eternal recurrence is a, um, a, an, uh, an abstract way of, of um, describing these um, moments of uh, despair um, and of uh, hopelessness. Well, yeah, now that you mention it, like, I'm thinking just about my own life, and it's like, I guess, you know, my birth, actually, my birthday is coming up in a few weeks, and now I'm at the point where my birthday, I almost, well, first I don't look forward to it because I don't like getting older, mm -hmm. and when you're young, your birthday is like this, at least for me, it was like this, I was so excited to have a new year and to be older, and now it almost for me, it's like a little bit depressing and I feel the repetition of it. Like, okay, it's just another year. Already did this before. It's the same as last year. 
I can also tell you even like with romantic relationships that when I was younger, you know, my first girlfriend or first love had such importance and meaning because it felt like everything, like the whole universe. And now because you've experienced it before, if you go through a relationship, you can almost like see the progression before it even happens. And like, okay, it's, it's a breakup, you know, six weeks I'll be feeling better again. It doesn't, <laughs> you're so removed from the emotions because you've done it before and you can just attribute it to, you can already know the ending before it happens. Mm-hmm. And like you're talking about revolution is the same thing. And I think, you know, in a way, again, to approach things this way is first of all, very despairing. And also a bit, it's kind of, again, making things easy on ourselves because we're removing ourselves, our emotions, our hope. We're kind of letting our emotions just be sterilized. Instead of engaging, I never really thought about it in those terms, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's true. So in these uh, moments, we kind of uh, distance ourselves from our situations, and that's what nihilism. That's what nihilism is in the yes. end. Yeah, it doesn't matter, <laughs> yeah. right? And um, yeah. well, obviously, Zarathustra is troubled by this, and Nietzsche is as well. Okay, so let's mm-hmm. continue. Yeah. So Zarathustra gets very sad. Okay, here's the interesting part. So he sees a young shepherd, Herton, on the ground, choking, twitching, his face is distorted, it says, and a black snake is hanging out of his mouth. Yeah, it's a strange, very strange image. Yeah. Shepherd on the ground, black snake. It says the snake crawled into his throat and bit down on his firmly. Okay, so then he says it takes his hand and tries to tear the snake out of the guy's mouth, but he couldn't. He couldn't tear it out. And then he yells at the shepherd, bite the snake's head. Bite the snake. He, Zaratush is yelling to the shepherd, correct? Am I reading this right? Yeah, yeah, but, but uh, so, so there, there, there is just one detail. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it says, uh, so I translate now on, yeah. on my own there, or uh, at this point, uh, it yells uh, from within uh, or um, yeah. in all of me. And I think uh, this is. Uh, because Ustra mm-hmm. uh, doesn't say uh, I yell, but uh, it yells. It's, it's, yeah, so, it so, so, so there, there uh, is uh, some force um, with, with uh, in him, 
which thinks in two two yeah. Oh right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Something inside of that yeah. trip yells out. Yes. Bite it. It's like unconscious maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So bite off the head. Bite it. He's yelling out. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Well, then there's some questioning here. He says. Who is the shepherd into whose throat the snake crawled this way? Who is the human being into whose throat everything that is heaviest, blackest will crawl? Meanwhile, the shepherd bit down as my shout advised him to do so. He bit with a good bite and then he spat the head of the snake out and leapt up to his feet. The translation is not so great, but... And this is the best line. He goes... No longer shepherd, no longer human, a transformed, illuminated, laughing being. Mm. Never yet on earth had I heard a human being laugh as he laughed. Oh, my brothers, I heard a laughter that was not, was no human laughter. And now a thirst gnaws in me, a longing that will never be still. My longing for this laughter gnaws at me, gnaws like, pulls at me or tugs at me. Okay, so essentially the shepherd bites off the head of this Mm -hmm. black snake and jumps to his feet and he's like almost, you could say resurrected maybe, or just kind of, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And filled with with life and joy and laughter. Mm -hmm. He's he's a happy shepherd. And now Zarathustra wants to experience the same laughter. This is obviously very mysterious. And I had my professor, Michael Levine, at Rutgers help guide us through this parable. I never would have figured, I would read this and been like, what, you know, like, what the hell is happening here? I'd be so lost. But, so let's just figure out what's going on here. Obviously, the black snake is something very negative, right? It's like this disgusting, mm-hmm. and it's choking him, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so what does the black snake represent? What do you think? So I think it uh, most definitely has uh, something to do with the idea of the eternal re- recurrent snake. It also uh, pops up as yeah. uh, other um, passages mm-hmm. of the book. And it's uh, and he, he uses this uh, picture of the snake which uh, uh, bites itself in its uh, its own uh, ending uh, tail its tail yes yeah. and and it's like a circle oh yeah okay. um, right let me give you yeah. my interpretation yeah. you can tell me if you disagree yeah. and I think it's similar to what you said but I'll put it in many different terms so. The shepherd, this story first is coming after the dwarf story. Mm-hmm. And Zarathustra is, like we said, he's, he's on the floor. He's depressed. He's in despair. Mm-hmm. He sees this. I don't know why it's a shepherd and not, I don't know why. It's just like, I don't know why there's a dog. Yeah. So, so I think this is an illusion to the you. Testament somehow. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's really weird. Uh, maybe, uh, I, I, I don't want to uh, inter- 
bestraft you, but when you think of it, I, I, mean, I mean, it's not even a, a I mean, so a difference from the ah, Lego, go, go, the allegorical speech of the Christian tradition, because Jesus is is shepherd, and of course the snake is the usually, and so it's in in Mamayu it's somehow weird that Nietzsche doesn't even try to. Oh, that twist to 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 a me it's almost uh, like a pure uh, yeah uh, repetition of this Christian tale of salvation somehow. I mean, okay, but well, let me. I have a little bit of a different take. I agree mm-hmm. that I see the Christian symbols in there mm-hmm. for sure. Jesus is the shepherd. That's a good point. I didn't really see that connection, but for me, it's. And I am sort of stealing ideas from my professor who kind of already told us this. <laughs> but obviously the shepherd is in a similar state to Zarathustra. They're both like choking, like very much almost dead, so mm-hmm. to speak. Essentially, for me, I see it as the black snake is like nihilism, okay? Where it's this force that is really oppressing, really oppressive, just like the dwarf was oppressive to Zarathustra. And it makes you feel, it cuts you off from life, right? It's choking you. It's, I mean, this image of the snake in the throat is so vivid and so, yeah, so visceral. So he can't pull the snake out of the shepherd's mouth. He has to bite it. Mm-hmm. To me, this is very clear. To overcome nihilism or to defeat nihilism, mm-hmm. you can't just kind of be casual about it or talk about it in armchair. <laughs> you have to attack. You have to really be strong, brave, and do something that's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, to bite the head of a, of a, of a snake. Mm. I mean, I don't mean to be too literal, but that's like really hard. Yeah. So I see it as like this answer to the dwarf about how to, to overcome that. And obviously when he bites off the snake, the snake's dead, suddenly he's transformed. But he had to go through this work, this really combat to emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I this seems yeah, uh, this seems to be uh, so I agree with you. This seems to be Nietzsche's response to nihilism uh, that I mean we uh, don't or we can't uh, de- or we shouldn't deny it, but we we have to to go uh, through it. And yeah. uh, when we take or uh, when we uh, get to the deepest point of uh, nihilism then there is somehow I mean, I mean it's not so uh, easy to understand but then there's uh, somehow this uh, turning point yeah 
Das so, das so der, 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 der Midnight Beer comes and and we we somehow can see uh, within the, the highest uh, despair, the, the highest hope. Yeah. I mean, it's a very spiritual thought, yes, right, I think. Almost a bit like, I mean, sugar-coated, I might say. Sugar-coated, what? It's sort of this, I mean, sugar-coated, like this, you know, we've seen these movies, these kind of quote-unquote cheesy movies where the character, I'm picturing maybe a boxing movie where he's like knocked out and then <laughs> that's when he gets up and like Rocky, have you seen Rocky? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, From my hometown, Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> and like this, well, once you think you're out, down and out, that's when you get back up and emerge victorious. But obviously there's a lot more deep things going on here. Yeah, and, 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 and I, I mean, uh, once more, I, I think that this Thought is not that <laughs> different from a Christian thought, even because also Christ, I mean, he is crucified, he goes through the highest pain, he's yeah. tortured, and then he dies, he's, he goes through hell, he's dead, I think, for three days, then the Miracle happens. Uh, and actually, I think also with the second coming, <coughs> we believe that like there'll be the apocalypse and things will be at their worst, and then Jesus will come back. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, never thought about that either. Yeah. They, they are, this is so uh, Christian somehow. <laughs> uh, well, like you said, Nietzsche wanted to kind of parody maybe, or at least allude to the Christian Bible when he wrote Zarathustra. But Nisha also himself was raised with a very Christian upbringing. Mm -hmm. His father was a minister. So I'm sure he had that sort of, to some extent, he had that worldview as from his child, which he obviously spent most of his life trying to escape. But maybe it comes out again without his even realizing it, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, okay, so, so, uh, so, so it's just a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, a conversation with a friend who uh, doesn't like uh, Nietzsche too much mm -hmm. and he said Nietzsche ju uh, just came uh, 2,000 years to and so uh, Nietzsche just uh, couldn't see that yeah, that uh, resurrection all uh, took place <laughs> somehow, and which is not my opinion, but any which has, I, I think, um, some truth to because I think that Nietzsche uh, doesn't have a, I mean, of course, he does have a profound understanding of Christianity, but I think that there is some uh, deepness of uh, Christian thought, which he, well, I know it for some reasons, just couldn't uh, grasp properly.
To approach truth with a capital T, it seems that we need to be able to hold contradictions together as one, even if they disprove each other. My interview with Powell was based on an earlier episode of The Shrift, episode 9 of season 1 to be exact, in which I discussed a particular scene in Thomas Mann's epic novel, Joseph and His Brothers. In this scene, Joseph and his father Jacob are celebrating Passover, centuries before the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. Why did Mon have them celebrating Passover centuries before Passover would even occur? There are two arguments for the existence of this scene in Mon's novel. One could argue, based on the Talmud, that the figures of Genesis intuited the future commandment to observe the Passover holiday due to their spirituality and their closeness with Hashem. One could also argue that the Jewish holiday of Passover had its historical roots in a pagan celebration revolving around a sacrificial lamb and unleavened bread, which nevertheless had nothing to do with a max exodus of slaves from Egypt. The first explanation is the theological perspective. The second is the scientific and aesthetic perspective. In that earlier shrift, I argued that neither of these perspectives really wishes to grapple with the contradiction and mystery which Thomas Mann has imbued into the very heart of his epic work. Both of these perspectives, like the dwarf, make things too easy. Instead, I posited, we must somehow hold both contradictory opinions together, fuse them, and then transcend them. However, to achieve the kind of belief and faith and truth which Zarathustra summoned when he convinced the shepherd to bite off the head of that irksome black snake, it was not sufficient to just hold on to two contradictory ideas. Anyone can just say, I believe simultaneously in contradictory ideas, therefore I found the truth. In short, we cannot just acknowledge. There also needs to be some significant biting going on. We need to bite, to bite down. We must stare down the opposite, the opponent, acknowledge its existence, and then vanquish it. But it cannot be vanquished through logic or through a persuasive argument, but rather through our own will. In oversimplified terms, this would sound as follows. Joseph celebrated Passover because it was a pagan holiday. Joseph celebrated Passover because he was infused with God's spirit. I have seen all of the archaeological evidence in support of the first statement, and yet I am choosing the second. In short, the theologian would need to allow himself to stare down the archaeologist or religious studies professor and then make a kind of leap of faith into theology. Okay, well, anyway, I think just getting back to the parable, kind of lost the thread a bit, but he's at his lowest point. And like you said, it's when you're at this kind of low point at midnight, so to speak, that you're able, like you said, you have to 
to overcome nihilism, to go through nihilism. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a very important point that yes. you should remember. Yes. Because I think a lot of people try to overcome nihilism by just ignoring it or just replacing it, maybe just turning to some, yeah, replacing it, ignoring it. Mm-hmm. This is really, I think, what's at issue here is that Nietzsche's, like you put it very well, is that to get over nihilism, you have to go through it. Mm-hmm. Overcoming it, this very unpleasant act of biting off the snake's head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think coming back to the dwarf, you know, people that want to, obviously, to be a nihilist is also for Nietzsche making things too easy on yourself. But to just ignore nihilism or to replace it, I think Nietzsche would also say is you're making things too easy. Mm-hmm. You're not countering the black snake or the dwarf. So somebody who, I don't know, maybe someone who just said, well, I don't want to even think about nihilism. Like that for Nietzsche would also be, I guess, an excuse, right? And not real. Yeah, yeah. sure. We'll come back to that in a minute, I guess, with maybe with Thomas Mann, but what is the other way to view the moment now after the, the snake's head's been bit off and the shepherd is happy and, and joyous? How does this change our view of, of the moment in this passage, right? Like, Because I think it all comes down back to this. I mean, I think we kind of already know the answer, but I'm curious to hear what you think. I think that or what the shepherd accomplishes is to affirm the current moment and to have this perspective of eternal recurrence at the same time. So it's like a synthesis of both, yeah, of both contradicting ideas of the affirmation of the present time and of the idea that this that there is no true present time somehow because it's just a repetition of the former of the past to to put it in one word here so it's in a way, it's it's a paradox, I guess you might mm-hmm. say. It's accepting mm-hmm. the circularity of time, mm-hmm. but in a way that's affirmational. Yes. Yes. Not resi- resign, not resignatory, or not defeatist. Is mm-hmm. that the difference now? So now the mm-hmm. moment goes from, even though it's still one of infinite moments, each moment is. What word would you use to describe it? each moment under this new, now that the snake's head is, is gone? So I think the point is that each moment now is not just unique, but it's even uh, eternal. It, uh, because, I mean, it's not seen as a reason for despair to this moment uh, will 
repeat itself R again, but now it's a scene as a as a chipimation of each moment in time. Do do you follow me? Yes, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think we agree that for the dwarf, each moment was just, I would say, unimportant, insignificant, kind of worthless, maybe. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'm trying to think what words can we use now for the moment after the this after this transformation. Yeah. Now, uh, every moment is uh, super important for yeah. me. Yeah, and I think uh, this is what Nietzsche wants from us, basically. He uh, wants us to use each moment of our lives as uh, something which is eternal, which, uh, we, uh, which will we recur all the time, yeah. but we, we shouldn't see it as a burden, but more as a liberation. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Or as a opportunity, maybe? Maybe, yes, maybe an opportunity, yes. So, in a way, the framework hasn't changed. The moment is still its gateway, and the time is still infinite. It's just the way we look at it is different, I would say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, I guess, I think what's also significant, the more I think about this is, Like I said, the like you go to the framework, the world. He's not Nietzsche's not trying to change reality. He wants us to accept life, even if maybe at its core, it, it time is a circle. But he wants us to change the way we view that circle. And I guess you know a person. I don't want to use the term a religious person, but I don't really know what else other term to use. I think they would probably just dispute the framework, the dwarf's framework altogether. They would say, time isn't a circle, time is a straight line. Yes. It's moving in a certain direction. Yes. What Nietzsche is doing is like, he's not changing the, the format, he's just changing the mindset, I guess. Would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, yeah, this is the, I think the decisive point. Nietzsche, And uh, of course, I mean, this is Nietzsche's critique of uh, how he uh, used the Christian tradition. He sees it as if this tradition just uh, just uh, 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 ignores this deep and uh, disturbing reality, supposes so a um, transcendent world where all these negative aspects of reality are I mean yeah, uh, are not there totally yeah, yeah. so Christianity yeah. tries to well, they were, maybe they were really using the word sugarcoat so to speak Yeah. where Nietzsche's critique of Christianity is it tries to just push aside or ignore these the world the way it really is yeah. so that they can feel more comfortable. Yes. Like maybe 
like, I guess, well, I, I don't want to say the dwarf because the dwarf was sort of a nihilist, but probably, right. So that Nietzsche is really trying to do something quite remarkable, which is accept nihilism and then transform it into mm-hmm. something that has as much meaning as religion would have. Yeah, I mean, at least as, uh, for, for Hugo, but I mean, yeah, so, of all the or how to put it, I mean, A, we should talk uh, about uh, if this teaching is reconvincing. I, I mean, for example, to go back to the beginning of um, our talk, I mean, uh, if we uh, have in um, mind this, these uh, soldiers who end into the Second uh, World War. First World War. Uh, uh, first, first World War. Maybe the second as well, but this is an other uh, thing. Uh, the, the, the first, uh, or oh, yeah, of course, I mean, a witch with the booster in their, their uh, backpack, right. so, so to speak. I mean, and so uh, Nietzsche would uh, tell them uh, uh, war is the essence of life, and there is no. Uh, the possibility to uh, is as a cave this fate and you have to accept it and you you you, you have to be as uh, brave as uh, possible right so I think you can find such attitude in model of Ernst Jünger uh, for uh, example the in um, I I don't know the translation of the title, but maybe it's, it's something like uh, within thunders of steel or something like this. Do you know? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, or, uh, but, 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 but yeah, this uh, famous uh, novel of uh, on the First uh, World War, which uh, I uh, read as a way of uh, make sense of the Nietzsche's philosophy or okay, to, to say the um, other way around to make sense of the, the, the first world war uh, using Nietzsche's philosophy. Yeah, but I mean, I, 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 I mean one can I think a debate uh, if uh, this is uh, actually the the best best way to con- confront such yeah. situations. Well, I think you're right, and I think it also this parable started out again with this emphasis on courage, mm-hmm. moot, yes. that you have to have. I would describe the whole adult. You know, you have to have the moot. The courage to conquer anything, you know, that's what will allow you to conquer, I guess, nihilism and death. And I can understand now why the soldiers maybe wanted to read Zaratustra. Mm-hmm. And first of all, we have to also remember that Nietzsche was educated in Prussia, which had this very military culture. Nietzsche himself was in the military, even though he was extremely, you know, critical of Prussia and mocked Prussia and didn't always take Prussia very seriously, he still had certain Prussian adaptation attitude to him. 
Mm. This idea of you have to be strong and you have to be diligent and you can conquer with, I mean, it's very militant. Mas- I'd say it's very masculine in a kind of negative, like you have to be a man, and, you know, kind of be strong. And I think it's very questionable whether that is a healthy attitude, if that is going to bring any kind of real joy or happiness or, so I, maybe that's what you're trying to say is that that's, it might sound good or sound appealing that you can conquer nihilism if you are just strong enough to bite off that snake's head. Mm. But maybe the problem with this attitude is it's a little bit too aggressive and uh, too militant, I guess. I remember I heard once a quote from a, a Nietzsche, another Nietzsche scholar named uh, Robert Solomon. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's given some amazing like lectures on existentialism and Nietzsche. And highly recommended. He's also from my hometown, by the way, <laughs> outside of Philadelphia. And he said, you know, he was compa- contrasting Nietzsche with Hesse and saying, you know, Nietzsche, he talks a lot about happiness, he talks a lot about joy, about victory and conquest and like achievement. Maybe let's just stick with happiness, but you can feel in his writing that Nietzsche was never actually happy. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hesse, who actually was a Buddhist, <laughs> was, seemed to have actually found happiness. Mm-hmm. So I think we should question this approach. Okay, well, I think we have to leave Zarathustra on this mountaintop (laughs) (laughs) or on the ship Mm -hmm. and let him have, continue to have his adventure, which I guess will just keep going on eternally. (laughs) (laughs) But just want to say thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Mm -hmm. for coming all the way up from Leipzig here. And... It was just incredible to have someone who knows Nietzsche so well and could really help us to understand this difficult having an insider explain it to us. So thank you. Thank you for, for this inspiring conversation. It is perhaps the cruelest of ironies that we seem to have made Nietzsche's theory of the eternal return all too easy on ourselves. How else might we explain why, on that summer evening, I, as a teenager, heard this theory and had little to answer my friend but, cool. Indeed, how often has Nietzsche's theory simply been downgraded to mean that we should live life to the fullest and make the most of our lives? In fact, as Paul and I have endeavored to show, this parable from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, The Vision and the Riddle, is conveying the most subtle and yet most powerful of philosophical points. It is so subtle, so delicate, so beautiful, that it is beyond language to convey. Instead, it must be captured through the image of biting off the head of that circular black snake of nihilism. After our hour-long chat, 
I hope that Paul and I were able to get you a bit closer to realizing what it means to stand in the doorway of the moment and to stand in the doorway of the moment. However, unfortunately and paradoxically, if you think you've gotten it, it means you haven't yet. For if we ever find ourselves saying, yes, I understand, to Nietzsche's theory of eternal recurrence, it means that we have made things far, far too easy on ourselves. Or wait, am I making it too easy by even coming to that conclusion? Oh boy. Paul, did you leave yet? I could use your help on this one. Ha <laughs>